you know, as we've been talking about understanding what it feels like to step out and step forward, I think that if, if I had to be honest, at least in my own life, one of the biggest hindrances that I experience when we're talking about courage and when we're talking about stepping out into new areas is things that are behind me. I think that if we were all honest, a lot of the reason why when we're asked to step out and do something new or when God, you know, talks to us about something or we know that there's a promise of God in our life that God wants for us or that we want for ourselves, I think that if we're to be honest, a big area where we maybe have fear, maybe where we're nervous, maybe where we feel the discouragement comes because behind us, we've tried to do something similar to it. Behind us is a time when we did step out, is a time where we did try to do something and the results weren't the way that we thought about it. And so this morning, uh, mom, you were flowing. Uh, we're actually going to be in Philippians as well this morning. So you're, we're flowing with you. And we're actually going to read in Philippians 3 uh, because Paul, in, in this particular portion of scripture, what he does for us is he gives us a, a very strong and very clear understanding of how he was so successful at being able to continue to move forward in his life. I think that if you've read through the, the, the different letters that Paul has written and you read about the different accounts of people talking about Paul, one of the things that we very quickly see is that Paul was somebody who, yes, absolutely, was, was out and doing the things that God had asked him to do, but his life wasn't short of problems. His life wasn't short of difficulties. His life wasn't short of what we may say as failures. I mean, when he gives an account of the things that he's done in his life, he talks about, you know, I've been homeless and I've been poor and I've been shipwrecked and I've been beaten and I've been bit by a snake and I've been near death. So this is a guy who, although he is very good at moving forward, we see that he understands something very clearly because it's not as though he doesn't have negative situations in his past. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, at least when I'm honest with myself, I realize that if it wasn't for the things, the disappointments, the discouragements that are behind me, the pain, the hurt, the different things that are behind me, I think that I would have a lot easier time stepping into new things that God is asking me to do. I mean, if I could be honest, I, I talk to a lot of people and whenever I talk to somebody and I give them advice, there, there's a certain group of people who really don't want the advice. And those are the kind of people who actually know the advice that they need. They know the truth. They know what to do. But because of past failures, past problems, uh, Kenneth Copeland a few years back did this. He had kind of like a homecoming back to faith for all the people who in the past thought that faith failed them. And so because they thought that faith failed them, they didn't want anything to do with it. And so because of their past failures, it was keeping them prisoner from being able to step into the courageous things that God is asking them to do. And so when we take a look at Paul in the book of Philippians, I was reading just kind of a history about the book of Philippians, and, and one of the things that people write about, about this book that Paul writes to the church of Philippi is that it's, it's one of the most positive books. I mean, if you, if you read through the book of Philippians, there are so many positive and uplifting scriptures. And when I read that, my immediate thought was that this must have been one of those books that Paul wrote, you know, when he was on a beach somewhere. 
you know, taking a vacation. He was probably on, you know, the beautiful beaches of Cyprus, you know, lounging, you know, with people fanning him and he's eating grapes and he's just writing a love letter to the church of Philippi. But actually what you realize is that this amazing, encouraging, hopeful book that was written to a church, Paul actually wrote it from the dungeon in a jail cell that he discovered something about being able to be courageous and hopeful in what seemed to be the most dire of situations. And as I read about that, I realized that, you know, I read through the book of Philippians a couple times because I was very interested to understand that there must have been something that Paul understood where his situations really had little to nothing to do with his outlook on his future. That while he is in the, you know, the dungeon, the deepest dungeon of the, the worst jail cell, he's writing hopeful, expectant things to the church of Philippi. I mean, one of the scholars said that most likely the reason the outcome of his prison sentence that he was living out at this point would have been death. But you read throughout the book of Philippians all the times that Paul is saying that he's excited to be able to be with the church of Philippi once again. That even in the worst situation possible, where the outcome is basically known by Paul and everybody around him, it's as though, and, and, and I, know it's not that, I know that it's not that Paul is dumb. Right? Because, I mean, we, we're going to read through in the passage of Scripture today that Paul was the best of the best. He was the most educated. So it wasn't that he didn't understand what his prison sentence was, but it was that he understood something. Can I get an amen? He understood something that was greater than what his sentence said to him. That he knew the truth that was beyond this momentary, what he says, light momentary affliction. And what we're going to talk about this morning is this, because I believe that as I was reading through the, this book, I saw something, and I saw that courage begins where the character of God is known. Courage begins where the character of God is known. You see, Paul understood the character of God, and so his situation really had very little opportunity to move him because he understood the nature of God. You see, you'll never trust someone who you don't know. You'll never trust, I mean, isn't this just a reality? I mean, for, for the most of you, I tell you something, if I'm in a ditch somewhere, which I'll never be, thank you, Jesus, because I have good snow tires. But if, let's say I was ever in a ditch. I've been in ditches before in my mom's van, for example. <laughs> years ago. I actually lost a shoe in that incident. Sad day for my shoe, not the van. It wasn't my van, so I didn't really care. <laughs> Just kidding. In the moment, I really didn't. I cared about my shoe more. But I realized something, that if I'm in a ditch somewhere, if I'm in a desperate situation, I'm not going to call on someone who I don't trust. Isn't that true for all of you? Like, you're not going to, if you're in a ditch somewhere, you're not going to, like, randomly pick up your cell phone and just dial some random 905 number, right? No, you're going to call someone who you trust. Why? Because trust is the, the foundation. Trust is the, it's the crux for us to being able to step out and be vulnerable. 
And so Paul understood this in the book of Philippians. He understood that because I can trust the nature of God in the midst of my difficult situation, I have the ability to be courageous. Paul understood that even though he was, you know, he was chained down, he realized that he had the upper hand. He realized that even though he was in a lowly place, that even though he was beat down, even though his situations may have tried to make him feel as though he should be discouraged, Paul understood that with Christ, he had the upper hand. I'm here to tell you this morning in this Christmas season that I don't really care how you're feeling, you have the upper hand. In Christ, you have been given the upper hand, the answer and the solution to every problem you might face this season. Christ, Jesus, is our answer and he is our upper hand. And so let's talk about this. What's happening in Philippians 3? Because this is what we're going to read. That what Paul is doing is he's laying down for us a pathway to our promise. He's laying down the, the roadway. He's laying down the foundation for us to step into what we know God has promised to each of us. And he's going to give us a few examples in a moment, but what, 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 what I love about this portion of scripture in Philippians chapter 3 is that everything that Paul tells us about getting to our destiny, everything that Paul tells us about stepping out is active. I think that's one of the most beautiful things that we realize, the congruency through all of Paul's letters is that every time that he talks about us stepping out into our destiny, every time that he talks to us about moving out and obtaining something by faith, it's always and will forever be active. He uses words like press on. He uses words like pursue. We hear him say things like prevail to the end. He understands that if we're going to step into our promise, that it's going to require action. It's going to require power on our own end to pursue until we experience the promise. God is looking at us. He's given us everything that we need in order to succeed. And what Paul is going to speak to us about very simply is that if we can just leave what's behind us behind us, It'll be easy for us to obtain what's ahead. You see, you aren't going to accidentally slip into your promise. But faith is a directed action in a fixed and forward motion. Faith is on purpose. Faith is intentional. We're making these declarations on the screen. You know, this is going to be, you know, December's prosperity month. It's going to be our best Christmas yet. I tell you something, you're not going to accidentally slip into your best Christmas. You're not going to just stumble into it. You're not just, it's not going to happen by happenstance. But I tell you something, the Bible says it like this. The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living and active on the inside of you. You have the power. You've been given the power in order to cause those promises to come to pass. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures this morning. But I've discovered that the word is the answer. And I'm just going to give you a commentary on the word. The word is the foundation. So let's take a few minutes in the word. Amen? Amen. Okay. So let's read first, or, or sorry, not first, Philippians 3. And we're going to read, get ready for it, chapters or verses 1 to 14. It's probably the most I've ever read before. So your patience with me will be, is, is greatly, uh, thank you for that. Okay. So let's read this. So he says this, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Can I tell you something? This is going to be our first key. I'll give you a little snippet into where we're going. Can I tell you something that 
Our greatest weapon that we have is our worship. He says this, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. You know, dogs. This is a good key, beware of dogs. I actually got bit by a dog once before. We won't go there. It was traumatic. I, sh I didn't read Philippians 3 at this point in my life, so I didn't know. This is not, he's not talking about actual dogs. He's talking about people. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware, what? Beware. For we are, for, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So this is what Paul is saying. If anybody has the, the right, if anybody would have the ability to have confidence in themselves, I have it. Okay, I mean, when you read about the history of Paul, you realize he was like the men of the men. He was like from the highest family, you know, in the highest order. He was the first son. He was being trained by the, you know, the high priest. He was the guy. And he's saying, if anybody had the ability to do this on their own, it would be me. So he says that. I more so would have the ability. Here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. So he's going through saying like, he is basically a little prideful, I gotta admit, okay? We've all been there, right? But he's saying to them, listen, I, if anybody could do this on their own, it's me. He says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Christ. So what's he realizing? He's realizing that the promise of God has very little to do with him. You see, can I tell you this morning, that's good news for each of us. Because maybe you're not like Paul. Maybe you wouldn't sit here and say that I'm the best of the best. Maybe this morning you might sit here and say, I'm the worst of the worst. Maybe you might sit here and try to, to tell me that, you know, I could never do it because I don't have the ability. But, but we see from this verse in Philippians, we realize that Paul is saying that any of his natural talent or ability, he counts as nothing. It's, it's negligible. It's, it's of literally no effect in his life. But he says this, yet indeed I also count as, as lost the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and that I would be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You see, he's telling us right here that he, he knows, he knows who he is. He knows who he's serving, and he knows who he can trust. He says this, that I may be, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which Christ has also laid for me. Brethren, I do not, this is where we want to focus today. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, 
but one thing I do. That's a strong statement. There's one thing, one thing that I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward toward those things that are ahead. Heavenly Father, this morning, we love your word. You said that your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. <clears throat> that it leads us and guides us into the truth. And we know that everything that we need is found in there. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to illuminate our eyes and our ears and our mind. We want to think the way that you think, see the way that you see, and understand the way that you understand because we've been given the mind of Christ. Elevate us to your level this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had a recent experience like this. I, uh, I got to tell you, I hate sledding. Just so you all know. Tobogganing, sledding. Okay, depending if you're American or Canadian, I think we call it different things. I hate it. And not because I always hated it. Okay, so don't ask me to toboggan, right? This, the answer is going to be no up in front. Danielle has been trying to get me to snowboard for like the last five years, and I always have the best excuses about why I can't snowboard, because actually, truth be told, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to toboggan, but not for no reason, okay? This was probably about like six or seven years ago. I had what, what I like to call the most epic tobogganing accident ever recorded in human history. And again, I think the last time I was preaching, I was telling you guys a little bit about how, you know, being a boy, for all of you in here who were boys at one point in time, it was a really challenging time in your life. Because what I discovered is boys do the dumbest things, okay? How many of you have sons in here? And you'd be like, yes. How many of you were one of those dumb boys? Yes. How many of you aren't going to raise your hand no matter what I say? Good. <laughs> awesome. Praise the Lord for you guys. Love you too. Now, I was one of those boys who somehow found himself doing the dumbest stuff. Like, I don't know why. I was actually a pretty smart kid. At least I thought maybe I hit my head too many times, so I was whatever. But I had this moment where I was tobogganing, like I said, it was probably six or seven years ago. And, uh, you know, we were having fun. We were over at Douglas Hill, which I'm pretty sure now is illegal to toboggan there because of me, right? Thank you. They call it the Alex Law because I broke my face on that hill, which I'll explain to you. So the thing about Douglas Hill, actually, I think the thing about snow around here in general is snow around here stays snow for about 10 seconds, and then it turns to ice. You all familiar with this? And so I wasn't tobogganing on nice, soft snow. I was actually tobogganing on an ice rink, okay? Hard, solid ice. And for some reason, like I said, and this wasn't even boy Alex. This was like 22-year-old Alex, so... I can't even blame it on dumb young boy, Alex. It was, you know, I was dumb in my 20s. Thank God I'm in my 30s now, and I have arrived. Hallelujah. <laughs> but so I'm in my 20s, and, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, there's this ego thing that happens, right? You know, you're young, and you're kind of like muscular, and, and you think you have a lot of great ideas that are going to work out awesome that very rarely actually work out awesome. I mean, last time I was telling you about climbing up onto a roof and basically thinking I was going to die up there. Remember that? My mom's friend had to go get a ladder in front of all these people so I could, no, okay, anyways. So this time was very similar, except the fact that it ended so much worse than, than climbing down a ladder. Uh, I was tobogganing and I was on a GT snow racer, also, which I think they don't make anymore because people have died like myself almost on GT snow racers. Man, I tell you something, they should have figured like dangerous stuff out a long time ago. <laughs> Would have saved me a lot of pain. 
But I'm riding down on a GT snow racer, and those things are made for maximal speed in the snow, so you can only imagine how fast they go on the ice, right? Like, we're talking Mach 9 speeds going down this thing, and, and I'm thinking, you know, why would I go down the regular, you know, the nice kind of slow one? I'm going to go down the part that has a jump, okay? Now, historically in my life, I've never been good at ramp things, okay? Like, <clears throat> like growing up, my, I had like friends and we'd ride bikes and you know, my friends were always awesome at ramp style tricks, but I was always horrible at them. Like I remember we had this ramp set up one time. It was like real short, you know, and it was basically like a baby could have made the jump. And I remember like I tried to jump it, my back tire hit the thing and I like busted myself up real bad. So I already know going into this that it's going to end bad, but somehow in my 20 year old brain, I'm thinking, you know, history has told me not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Okay, so I do it, but then to make it worse, you know, I'm kind of like egging myself on. Everybody else thinks it's a bad idea, but I'm egging myself on, and I think it's smart to stand up on the GT snow racer on the ice about to go over a jump. You can see where this is going. Now, I'm up there, and I'm talking myself up that I'm going to do it. You know, never for a moment do I think that this is going to end bad. So I start going down, and immediately, you, you know that feeling? Like, you think it's going to be awesome until the moment, like the first little er, that your GT snow racer goes down, and immediately I knew this is bad. Real, real bad. I should have jumped off, but you're committed at this point, man. You know what I'm talking about. He can't jump off. I mean, the humiliation is worse than a broken face. You know this. Now, I, uh, so I'm going down the hill, you know, to, you know, to spare the details. I ended up on the ground, splattered, my face just covered in blood. But of course, I couldn't admit that I was hurt. Everybody around you knows you're hurt, right? Like my nose was crooked. I literally still have a scar on my face from where the gouge literally was showing the bone. Brittany remembers this, okay? But somehow in the midst of this, I'm like telling everybody, like, I throw my hands up in the air as though I just achieved some great victory. <laughs> when clearly the blood on my face and the ground and the law against tobogganing down the hill said the opposite. <laughs> but somehow I thought that it was. And, and the result of that has been I've literally never tobogganed since that incident. The scar on my face reminds me, but... Now, maybe you might be sitting here this morning thinking, hopefully thinking that you were never as dumb as I was in my 20s, and you've never had an epic sledding incident, but I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we've all gone through similar situations to that, where we've stepped out and tried something new, or we've done something new, where we have, you know, put ourselves out there, been vulnerable, and the result of it wasn't the outcome that we had hoped for. That maybe it was a bad relationship, Maybe it was bankruptcy. Maybe it was a business failure. Maybe it was a health problem. Whatever it was, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we all have things that we have done and tried, and the negative result of those things has kept us from being confident to step out to do the things that God is asking us to do. And as we're reading through the scripture, I think that if there's one thing that, if, that, that stuck out to me is that, like me, Paul had a couple of epic sledding accidents, his life wasn't, like I said earlier, without problem. His life wasn't without challenge or difficulty. But Paul was, in the midst of that, able to, it was almost as though his past failures had no effect. It was almost like they were two different people. 
past Paul and present Paul were two different people, that he had the ability to be hopeful even moments after he had failed, he had fallen, he had been disappointed. And, and as we run through the scripture, you know, he makes a statement that we're to forget what is behind. I think that that alone is, is enough wisdom. That alone is enough for us to take home today. But what I love about the scripture is that the scripture defines itself. You ever notice that? If you ever have a question, read the context, right? The, the, the scripture defines itself. And what Paul does is he gives us three areas as we look at on how it is that we forget the past. So the first thing that we have to do is praise, right? Right off the bat, we realize that Paul immediately gives us one of the main keys in order to forgetting what is behind. And he says this, rejoice in the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, rejoice. Rejoice. Say it like you mean it. Rejoice. Rejoice. How you respond to your situation will determine where you remain. Psalm 23 says it like this, that he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. I have a question for you this morning. Are you going to remain in the valley of the shadow of death or through the valley of the shadow of death? You see, the very fact that there is a valley of the shadow of death means we have the option. Are we going to stay in the middle of our trouble or are we going to be those that will walk through it? What I realized was how I respond to a situation is going to determine where I remain. How I respond to my situation will determine if I'm going to get through my situation. Our response matters on what we're doing. Our response matters on where we're going. Our response matters on if we're going to achieve, excel, and succeed in what God is asking us to do. You see, ever have that in traffic? I have that in traffic all the time, okay? I'm like Paul, right? I'm perfect. I'm blameless, except in traffic. Actually, except on the road in general. Alex, in the winter, behind slow grandmas, I mean, normally I love grandmas. When I'm driving, that's it. I'm going to run. Literally, I need a snowplow on the front of my truck so I can run them off the road, right? So beware. Old ladies in here. Hey, better watch it. But I realized that when I'm in the middle of traffic, did you know that how you respond in those situations matters? You know, I, I, I always had that, right? Where I'm in, you know, I'm in traffic and my always, you know, God bless me, right? Man, I know, I, I'm preaching the truth right now. But for some reason, when I'm in traffic, it's like the truth is just like a butterfly flapping away from me and I'm flipping out, right? But what I realized was, you ever had this before where you could be in the worst traffic, but if you respond properly to bad traffic, you can actually have a good time in a bad situation. Let me say that again. You didn't, you didn't catch that. I said, you could actually have a good time in a bad situation. That what's happening in your life right now may not be what you want, but you can enjoy the process of going through it. So I realized how I respond to my situations matters. You know, there was actually a study, and we hear this all the time, right? That our attitude determines our altitude. That our outlook determines our outcome, right? We've heard all the adages, but it's actually true. There was a study that I read about, and this was a study of 20 women. And it was a health and fitness study on 20 women. And 
this was their, their only parameter for, they, so they broke it up, 10 women had to say, I can't do it, and 10 women had to say, I can do it. So every time, every day that they were doing their workout, they, this is what they had to do. They had to prepare themselves to go work out by saying, I can't do this, I can't do this. Every time they got up to a machine, they had to say, I can't do this, I can't do this. Attitude, your response, can I tell you, your words have power. Proverbs tells us that life and death is where? In the power of our tongue. What you're saying over your situations matters. You know that at the end of three months, the group of women who said, I can, when it came to do something, nine out of 10 of them were still actively pursuing the lifestyle. The group that said, I can't. Now understand this. It wasn't that they were doing something different. Same workout routine, same gym, same place, same situations. The group that said, I can't, one out of 10. Our response, the way that I respond to my situations will determine whether or not I'm going to get through them. You see, our words hold the power and the potential to accomplish all of God's promises in our life. Right now, on your tongue, your words have the power, everything that's necessary in order to get you exactly where you know that God wants you to be. You see, I realize this too, is that rejoicing, we, don't, we shouldn't always just rejoice at the end. You know, sometimes we could do this, right? Like I remember playing hockey and it was like this, that depending on the results of the game determined how I was going to respond, okay? I was either going to celebrate with my team or I was going to, you know, break my stick on the door when I was walking in. It totally, you know, it just depended on the outcome of the situation. But when we look at David and the story of David, what I realized was David was rejoicing going into his battles, you see, when we're focusing and we're going into things, my response is not waiting for the outcome of the situation. I'm going in rejoicing about what I know God promised is going to do in this battle. I tell you, David wasn't shouting at Goliath when he was down on the floor saying, you uncircumcised Philistine. No, as he was running into his battle as he was running into his situation that people said was impossible, as he was running into the situation that people said could never be done, he was rejoicing about the victory that he already knew he was going to live in. So number one, we have to learn and remember that I must rejoice. Number two, I have to tune out the haters. So turn your neighbor and say, tune out the haters. Number one is praise. Number two is performance. People will always try to tell you that you cannot be what God says you are. People will always try to tell you that you cannot have what God says you can have. Let me tell you, if this has happened to you in your life at any point in time in history, you are in good company. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're in good company. I tell you something, I love the story of King David I think of anybody in the Bible, King David literally had the most haters possible. Let's take a quick recount of his story. So we know that when the prophet comes to his house, okay, he, he comes to his house and goes to Jesse, who's David's father, and says, bring all your sons and bring them here because the next king of Israel is going to come from your house. So what happens? The, the Jesse brings all of his sons and, in, and the prophet realizes, uh, he's not here. Is this one of your sons? Now, I would have understood if Jesse had like 45 sons, 
right? Because then it's like, uh, you know, David somehow gets kind of like lost in the mix of it, right? Like, you know, if you have like a thousand pogs, you ever have those pogs? Remember those pogs, people? Like, right? Yeah. We had a lot, I had a lot of pogs. And so the result of it was like, I couldn't keep count of all my pogs, but this wasn't the story. I think David had literally like six or seven brothers. So it'd be like my mom, you know, somebody going to my mom and saying, you know, get all your kids. And she grabs like Jess and Liz. Like, you're not going to forget about me. Like, we're one of three, okay? This was David's story. So he starts out by even his father being a hater, right? Like, even his father was like, totally didn't acknowledge that this guy was even my son. Okay, let's move on a little bit further, right? So he goes, and he's trying to get to battle, but his dad, again, being a hater, is like, oh, you'll, you can't do it. You're too small. You're too afraid. You're too little. And he goes to his brothers, right? His brothers, right? You know, my homeboys, my bros, right? Like, we got each other's back. He gets to there at the battle, and what happens? His brothers do the same thing, they're like, yeah, get out of here, you little punk. Like, you're no good. Go back home to daddy. You know, go back out to the sheep because that's all you're good for. And then to, to make things worse, he goes to the king. Clearly the king, right, the loving king, sacrificed his life for his people. But what does he do? Same story. You see, David's life was full of haters. But he realized one thing. I mean, we see him in the, in the cave of Adullam, right? I mean, they, they talk about this cave where really David wrote the, he wrote half of, at least he's a credit for half of the book of Psalms. And, you know, around half of his half of the book of Psalms was written in this cave of Adullam, which was, it, it was said, it said that in the cave, it's so dark that you literally can't even see your hand in front of your face. But you see, what he understood was he wasn't waiting for the outcome, he was going to rejoice through the process. He was going to rejoice at the onset. And so I see that people's perspectives only have power over me if I don't know my potential. Things people say to you, words that are spoken, things that people try to do, try to this, try to that, they only have power over me when I don't know who I am and when I don't understand my potential. Maybe it was your teacher. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was friends. People speak things over us. But I realized something, that if Jesus was willing to die for me, there must be something special about me. Like if the king of heaven, that's what we're doing, we're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating Jesus coming to earth. If he was willing to do that for me, for you, be something special about us. And number three is this, perspective. Perspective. We have praise, we have performance, and we have perspective. What is our perspective? What is our perspective of ourself? What is our perspective of our situation? You see, the more and more that I walk down this road of life, the more and more that I pursue what God is asking me to do, I realize something, that God gives me opportunities to see my weakness so that I can behold his greatness. He gives me opportunities to see my, my weakness. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians that I boast in my weakness. I boast in my shortcomings. I boast in the moments where I don't feel like I measure up. I boast in my moments where I fail. I boast in my moments where I feel as though I haven't lived up. Why? Because in weakness, 
your strength is made perfect. God gives us weak moments to see ourselves so that we could see how big and how good he is in our lives. Let me tell you something. God was never looking for you to accomplish your destiny. You know, I had a moment where I realized this, right? When we look at in the story of Moses, and I'm we, we look at the story of Moses, right? And we see that Moses, you know, was, you know, Pharaoh's son and doing the whole thing. And then he killed this guy and ran. And as he's running, he realizes through this encounter that he has with God that God has called him to be the deliverer of Israel. And one of the things that I realized is that Moses was actually a lot more like than he was like Jesus. He had a lot of excuses. He had a lot of reasons. He had a lot of self-doubt and self-hate, a lot of reasons why he couldn't, shouldn't, and wouldn't do what God was asking him to do. But in the midst of that, God was willing to meet him exactly where he was. I think that's why we see in this moment with Moses, when, when he goes to God and he says, God, how are you gonna do it? How are you gonna do this? How are you gonna deliver them? How are you gonna change Pharaoh's mind? And God doesn't answer the question of how with a how. He answers the question of how with a who. He answers the question like this, and he says, you know, God, how are you going to cause the people of Israel to deliver? And he says this, I am. He says, God, how are you going to change the nation? And God turns to him and says, I am. He says, I am your deliverer. I am your peace. In my life, God looks at me and says that I am your prosperity. I am the reason you're going to have a good Christmas. I am the reason why things are going to turn around. I am the reason why your marriage is going to get put back together. I am the reason why things are going to change. You see, Moses realized that it had absolutely nothing to do with him and everything to do with God. This Christmas season, I'm here to tell you one simple thing. Sometimes we have to let go. Let go of our past. Let go of our failures. Let go of what's behind us. And embrace what God is asking us to do. We have to be willing to trust we have to be willing to step out. We have to be willing to move forward. And the doorway to that is praise. I gotta keep away from performance. And I have to make sure my perspective of myself is God's perspective. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for what you're doing in our life. Lord, that you're changing us and molding us so that you can use us. Lord, we never thought that it was going to be easy or that it was supposed to be easy. But Father, this morning we say like David, we're fighters. We're willing to do and go where you ask us to go because we believe in your promise. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.